Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adaptivist Live, Team Titans. This is a show about people with unique perspectives on work itself, leading teams, building software, and defining, or maybe destroying, processes. This show is published between episodes of the Atlassian Ecosystem Podcast, so if you're looking for news and updates around Atlassian, look for an episode next Friday. I'm your host, Ryan Spilkin, and on this edition of Team Titans, I'm pleased to welcome adaptivist, agile consultant, and co-signatory of the Agile Manifesto, John Kern. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, You're welcome, Ryan. Pleasure to be here, as always. So, John, before we started the recording, you mentioned that the Agile Manifesto is going to be 20 years old next year in 2021. They're legal. Yeah, I mean, I guess... That means that I was 20 when it happened. <laughs> and now in your, in your not quite 40 years old. Right. So, John, can you give us a Reader's Digest story of the, the circumstances and the writing of the manifesto itself? Sure. Yeah, it was um, certainly not planned to have the impact that it did, but rather it was... For those who didn't live through that era, there was um, heavyweight processes that were all the rage and fairly the standard. And I was working in military DOD world, being a, uh, a DOD consultant, <coughs> contractor, I should say. <laughs> and you know, we, we were essentially uh, forced to use things like MIL standard 2167, this giant waterfall type. Uh, approach. So I was exposed to things that, frankly, as a taxpayer, being forced to waste taxpayers' money to do useless steps in a process that that might make sense in some contexts, but not every context, and especially because I was working in uh, research and development, uh, flight simulation, and, and all kinds of different uh, human factors things. Um, a lot of it didn't make sense. So I had already began to kind of craft a two-phased iterative type approach. Uh, at the time, I was working with Peter Code, who was famous in the, you know, somewhat famous in the industry. He had written a lot of books. He was my uh, object-oriented guru, for example. And the, the way that the way that I think it might have been initiated, I believe it was Bob Martin, Uncle Bob, who I used to read. Uh, I think in the C report or C plus plus journal, I remember his name from, you know, re- reading magazines. Maybe people listening to this podcast don't know what a magazine is like, or you know, can't fathom the fact that he used to get articles about. They're called PDFs, John. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Google. <laughs> anyway, you know, used to look forward to, to getting a magazine once a month, and you could learn new things, and so. Bob Martin contacted Peter Code, who I was working with, about uh, sharing some some ideas about lightweight processes, and, uh, because we were pushing feature driven development, and it was a different process. Uh, you know, there was a rational unified process, which was a big process, kind of heavyweight. So I went, I basically got the call from Peter to say, "Hey, why don't you go go do this thing?" and so Bob, essentially, pretty sure we also contacted Grady Booch, who was at that time working with Rational uh, in the unified process. And, um, so we did invite a big, because essentially they had the marketing muscle, right? And, and all these 
all us little people with feature driven development or XP or um, Scrum even. So Scrum existed before the Agile Manifesto was it written. Did. Ah, correct. You learn something new every day. I learned that I learned about processes I never heard of, uh, including Scrum uh, at the man, at the Agile gathering. So so anyway, we we were talking about where to hold it. One option was where we did hold it in Snowbird in, in Salt Lake City, which from a personal perspective, we, um, our girls, our twin girls kind of had a break between our son and, and our, and skiing with our, our young son and skiing again with the girls. Cause twins sort of put a kibosh on everything going for about five years. So we had actually just started skiing again as a family. <clears throat> and I was like, Oh, skiing. Was either that or Anguilla were another odd personal thing. It's the only Caribbean island I've been to, and, and we went there on our honeymoon. Oh. And I, I chose that because it was nobody ever heard of it. But anyway, that was the two options, but that's much harder to get to, so we went to Salt Lake City and went up to uh, Snowbird. And so the gathering really were, was a bunch of um, lightweight methodologists, even though at some point when we began to think about publishing our, our results, Alistair Coburn said, you know, I don't think I don't think we want to be known as a lightweight anything, right? That's not a good <laughs> term to be called lightweight. Uh, but we were really trying to contrast the heavyweight methods, and and we all had different perspectives. So in the beginning, that's really what we did. We shared how we approached doing projects in a more lightweight method, building software in a more lightweight method, and um, so that's when I, like I said, that's when I learned about the Scrum. Was there any talk? of these techniques being used in um, the manufacturing sense at this time? Or did you, were you yeah. taking inspiration from, from the, the work of con, the Kanban method? No, it was total software. Okay. I mean, it really was at, at that time um, we were just talking and you know, that's in, it's in the uh, it's, it's the part of the title because it, we really were just software practitioners who had found different ways to succeed using different techniques that were not heavyweight and then were more dynamic and reactive to uh, constant change. So the real world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I think it was, it was just trying to shine a light on, um, you know, essentially what kind of, what kind of commonalities did we, did we all have? So that's what was drawn out, in my opinion. It was it was the let's talk about how we each do things, how we run software projects, the kinds of experiences we've had, and then let's try to distill the gist of maybe what's what's common about each of these approaches, and um, and, and just try to shine a light on that. And that's really what the four bullets were it's basically things that we you know like you can imagine as a dod person i felt strongly and and was very vocal about a lot of the things regarding excessive documentation having to get into a pissing match over a contract um fooling yourself of doing nine months of use cases because it's on some you know heavyweight process and then hoping that at the end after 
all those requirements and someone does the design and then that gets handed off and someone does the implementation and then God forbid it might actually work, but probably won't at the end. Right? All that kind of stuff was, was kind of commonplace in my DOD world that I fought against and kind of didn't do and rebelled and rather did much more iterative, quicker results type thing. So from a DOD perspective, if you read those four bullets, you'll realize why well, I was happy about getting that out and getting that kind of, um, I know it made a lot of other people happy too, because that really was a common, I don't want to say mistake, but, but really there was a lot of, a lot of um, artificial waiting, W-E-I-G-H-C, waiting of activity in a, in a very waterfall method that um, I think we exposed as not really being as, as valuable as you might think. So, and that's also um, like, I, I'm very verbose. I love documentation. I'm kind of a nut about, about doing the, the enough where you have, have some clear visions and architectures and things like that, but just enough, maybe slightly less than just enough. So it's not that we, we, so some people misinterpreted the, the Agile manifesto and said, oh, good, we can throw out doing documentation now. No. Oh, we can throw out doing any upfront design. No. <laughs> so so it it's purposely was ambiguous because it's not black and white. It's very context-driven. That's really what we wanted to, you know, I think what we ended up being able to communicate is here's some very key elements that we found in our practice to be successful and um, essentially wiggle room. If you think about it, the, the, you know, we value the, you know, these things more than those things. So um, not, not black and white, not, not the fool's choice of trying to make it a or B and nothing in between. Uh, so I think that, that, that resonated. For, you know, uh, obviously. I'm looking in, looking at this from a DOD perspective, when you mention it, it, it's interesting to me that you're advocating for change from the bottom up in a in a monolithic organization. the The writing of that was just a direct ref, refuting of the monolith of of Department of Defense. That's uh, that's risky. <laughs> that's big. Well, yeah, like I said, it um, <clears throat> it's you know part of it was because I'm a you know, I'm a taxpayer too. Why should I be wasting other people's money or mine doing something just for the sake because I have to build this, you know, in this waterfall way and I have to produce all these documents for some, some but, you know, it, I don't know, I guess it's part of my personality too. It's my individual freedom <laughs> pension and don't control me. Don't tell me to do stupid things from 3,000 miles away when you don't know my context. So, I mean... That unfortunate, you know, not unfortunate, but that continues to this day. My my disdain <laughs> for being told what to do outside of the context of, you know, what we're trying to do. So it's you know to lead to more autonomy, um, less dogmatism, right? Being much more pragmatic, recognizing the way that I like to often approach. If I'm trying to describe the smallest way about what agile means, it's kind of reduce the gap in time between when you do something and you get some feedback, right? If that's really long, like nine months of use cases and big chunks of work before I actually see something running, good luck. But if it's short, you know, I always joke too. I, I use waterfall all the time. 
basically every feature. I do a little bit of a uh, little bit of design, a little bit of requirements, a little bit of coding, a little bit of testing, all rolled up and rapidly show something. Yeah, it's just a bunch of it's just a bunch of little waterfalls. But that's Correct. some some yeah. agile people would look at me for saying that and really give me a hard time. But and I, I would have deserved it. That's fine. But I. I I visualize it that way and it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. It is that way. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's, um, so a lot of it is, 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 is scale. One thing that we've spoken about before that I think is absolutely fascinating is how you talk about is when you mention that in the room, writing the manifesto itself, you had people who didn't like each other trying to work together what led to that sort of momentous um, shift in people's behavior? I'm not sure. Um, maybe the altitude or 8,000 feet. <laughs> people are more lightheaded. <laughs> I can't deal with this. Just, okay, you're right. <laughs> I really felt people left their egos at the door and were generally curious. And, you know, I was probably one of the more junior people there. Um, but still I'm, I'm a pretty vocal person. So I wasn't a, I wasn't a fly on the wall. I, I spoke a lot, but, uh, I, I think part of it was the spirit within which we came and I, I would credit, you know, Bob Martin and Alistair and Jim and Martin, uh, folks maybe who, who were subtly adept at fostering that kind of a culture or, or maybe it just happened. Right. I mean, I don't remember any um, overt control or any kind of, you know, it just seemed natural, natural. You know, we were having conversations. We were learning about each other's processes and techniques. We were combating a, in, in some sense, a common, uh, you know, I shouldn't say an enemy, but you know, it's like we all Obstacle. were combat. Yeah. That, that, that thing in the sky that was a big heavyweight process that most of the world followed and thought was a good thing to do. And we're all, so I, I can't say anything specific other than the egos were definitely left at the door. And, um, you know, there were a few, a few spats maybe about some of the 12 principles and, you know, things over about the only one that I, kind of remember was i don't remember if it was jim highsmith or you know so some of the methodologies were more about like a month long iteration and scrum was like two weeks and like all right bfd who cares so i think it's all in there right it's you know you, you can't that's part of the whole point is make the context that works for you just don't make it really long one of the things that you have mentioned in our previous chats though is this thing about thought bubbles can you tell our listeners how Essentially, you had people who didn't get along that well trying to get their thought bubbles to line up. Well, yeah, that's sort of a, a technique um, that, I, that I use, try to use a lot. And it really, because it, I think that leads, the, the, the words are ambiguous, right? It's very hard to ensure that even as we speak and we talk about something, that the same image appears above each person's head. That's kind of my, my metaphor for that, the thought bubbles. And it takes effort to keep asking and challenging and make sure that those 
I'll get an image. Make sure that the thought bubbles are indeed aligned. And it takes uh, you know, some degree of humility on both sides to keep at it until we're maybe overly sure that I understand you and you understand me and we're talking about the same thing. Got it. Okay, we can move on. Because it, <clears throat> without doing that, it can lead to, well, I thought we had agreement. Well, yeah, me too. It's just that the thought bubble wasn't the same on what you agreed to. So, yeah, I think that was part of the, you know, we had a bit of a relaxed atmosphere where we didn't have eight hours of meetings. We kind of had half days go out and ski or take a hike or just walk around or drink beer um, and regroup. So uh, I'll give credit to the, yeah, again, I, I, I kind of just showed up <laughs> and, and participated heavily, but I didn't, you know, whoever thought up the, who knows? Maybe we, even in the beginning, we decided what to do. I don't. I don't remember all those details. Um, well, you've slept since then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it's been twenty years. Tell us about some of the things that you've seen change in the world, and some of the experiences that you've had since the launch of the manifesto. Well, the probably the most astounding thing was it gave people in the trenches a lot of hope. I mean, it took off like wildfire. It definitely hit a nerve. And we certainly didn't have any idea that, that it would happen. So if I'm at, you know, it's still to this day, if I, if I go to, it's especially more prevalent in, in not so much the U.S. anymore, but if I go to uh, Agile Greece or Scrum Day in Colombia, people are genuinely thankful they come up, they want their picture taken. They're like, thank you so much for, for, you know, providing this to the world. And it's, it's, it's uh, humbling because uh, I feel a little bit like, um, well, you know, we just, we just kind of wrote down four measly bullets, you know, and all this other, you know, all this other shit just happened. Um, so that's, that's the most gratifying thing is it, it truly, I believe unleashed people, to understand that you can work in your context. You have a different way of working now. It doesn't have to be so rigid and dogmatic and lockstep. Now on the flip side, I kind of checked out of the Agile community because it got dogmatic and rigid and you know, scrum gods will strike you down if you uh, don't do the ceremony precisely correct. And I'm like, <laughs> All right, yeah, y'all, y'all don't get it. Sorry, you know, go back to school. Um, so that's sort of the, but that you know, that's to be expected. Yeah, any sort of yeah. philosophy gets its more uh, unpleasant adherence. And it's and it's just it's it's also I think the theory you know like crossing the chasm even with the new product. I remember at TogetherSoft, it it took me by surprise when suddenly the you know some organizations were asking for less features less often and i'm like what who doesn't want christmas all the time (laughs) and i realized that as we crossed the chasm and jumped from early adopters and people really able to to absorb change that it went to the laggards or whatever i forget the names now but basically went to larger companies who now have to deal with 
well, now we got to train people. Then if you keep changing it too often, we got to train. I'm like, oh, huh. I mean, they just can't pick it up by themselves. And, you know, <laughs> so it's a little bit like that, I think, where, um, you know, that sort of the, the momentum behind Scrum and everybody, you know, kind of becoming a uh, Scrum master. And, you know, it's certainly an easy meta process to latch on to. It's not very complicated. And, and it's also easier to follow a process, right? That's kind of what we were fighting against was a large process where you got all these cogs and gears and rolls and very specific things and handoffs and, and, you know, stuff that you just do like a robot. And then that's what we fought against. So when I saw that sort of behavior in the name of agile, I was like, all right, I'm trying to trying to fix y'all. I'm just going to go work with smaller teams and have fun and, build cool stuff and get it out to production and have, you know, have success. And y'all can just sit there and battle over, you know, a, a bigger, a bigger bat to hit people over with your ceremonies. Um, <laughs> but now I'm back working with some big companies. <laughs> <Still a mess. laughs> but are you seeing that they've adopted like as, as agile principles have, become more embedded in work culture. Are you seeing more of a shift in management and leadership towards accepting the human element that every employee brings to their job? Like, is that starting to, to take hold? I think what you're trying to get at is, um, or is there still, I mean, there certainly still are organizations that are, um, you know, it's a very challenging to not be command and control. It's very challenging to let go and, and have folks able to be more autonomous and, and work. So I think, I think part of it is a, still a scaling problem, you know, which leads to reasons why scale agile frameworks have come around or discipline agile or any, any of those, uh, you know, less, any of those ilk. Um, the cynic in me says, you can't do if you still can't do agile in the small scaling it isn't going to work however if you're a large bureaucratic organization and you you see the rigor and the large control that safe provides it's probably pretty appealing because now once again and i don't want you know it's probably not fair to say hide behind a process but you know i would see in the old days a lot of people hiding behind well you know, I'm, I'm doing my little part of it. It's that whole Taylorism thing. It's that whole not individual freedom. It's that whole, I think I can break down a system in the individual. It's the whole management by objective, right? It's if I do all these little pieces, <clears throat> you know, because I've, I've, I'm the puppeteer and I've figured out how things work. And if I build all these gears and cogs and stuff like that, it, I'll magically get what I want. I mean, you might. But you get it more effectively with a, with a more, um, more autonomy and people rowing towards the goal and, and, and doing the right micro maneuvers to be better at delivering what they're doing instead of just, did, do you ever ask if the person that you gave that big 37-page document to right, reads it? No, I'm just doing my 37-page document, right? Uh, I mean, I exaggerate for effect, but 
I'm, um, I'm with you. I'm so, with you. Now, has that changed in large organizations? Probably not. They're still extremely bureaucratic, but certainly there have been a lot of pockets of change probably in large organizations. A lot of things have benefited where the, where the individual's contributions are valued. Um, you know, so to answer your question, I think, you know, it, it's still, you know, it still isn't Nirvana or Utopia. <laughs> I don't know if it ever will be, oh. but at least it has had an impact. There are certainly organizations doing really well and even large ones that, that are doing much better than they probably would have been without this sort of thing. And that brings us to the Atlassian toolset, because so many of these organizations are trying to use um, basically Jira, Confluence, Bitbucket to to keep an eye on where their products and services are in in their life cycle. And um, you have an interesting talk about the topic titled in a very characteristically John Kern way, How to Unfuck Jira. Why does Jira get fucked in the first place? So I've been using Jira since it came out, basically, right? So, um, just turning forty, huh? <laughs> well, no, it's only been out since less than the man- manifesto, I think. Maybe oh two, oh three, somewhere around early two thousands. I was using it for sure. I love it, but I see it being bashed. Now, I'm not saying you know the, it's just a tool, right? So one one of my sticks, matter of fact, one of my sticks for. Over 20 years. This is a good one, folks. People processing tools uh, in that order, right? So really, really good people. They'll figure out the good process to, to meet their, their needs. And they might even invent good tools to help them do things more efficiently. But to turn that on its head um, is, 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 is not good. And so I've always, and I've sold tools, right? So I've built and sold tools. I, I feel real proud about what we built in, at TogetherSoft. So I'm a software, I still develop software. I'm a software developer and, and I built things into that tool that helped me pr- deliver products, right? So, uh, you know, it, it was also extremely successful in the marketplace. Um, but it was just a tool. And I would even say, this is now it's probably politically incorrect, but I would always say a fool with a tool is still a fool. And my father made beautiful musical instruments. I have his tools. I have his swiss inca saw i can't make those right <laughs> just because you have a tool that's that's only part of it um and and jira is no different and the sad thing when i see it bashed in twitter i always come to its defense uh <laughs> treating it like it's a human or it's like <laughs> a thing. but it's it's rarely the tool no you know i mean it's and, and so why I say how to un-F Jira is because um, I'm going to, 2020, I want to go on a crusade to, to help folks that are delivering services, so to speak, like Jira, even like infrastructure, right? I mean, those sort of shared services teams are in the same kind of boat. Um, and I, I only just realized this when I gave a talk to the Federal Reserve maybe a month ago. And, you know, there's like a, you know, the agile infrastructure manifesto, there's the agile JIRA manifesto. You know, I want to help folks understand that the the reason people bash JIRA is often because of the the competing needs of they're trying to get their job. The JIRA admins trying to do 
something they think is 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 good but it's usually because they lock it down i mean i the worst case that i discovered years ago at a large mapping uh services company was the poor developer couldn't even move their assigned task into progress and i thought for sure something was wrong and 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 because he was saying things that was just like, nah, I can't be right. Let me, let me, let me show me your computer show, like as if he couldn't use the mouse, right? <laughs> and I was like, wow, what the heck? And then I went into the era, you know, this was like some agile transformation process. So there was a, a committee that was assigned to do this. They had just received Jira and they locked it down from the get-go. And I'm like, it's like unusable. Like, what are you doing? A poor developer can't even, you know, so it's very command and control. Well, we didn't want to do it. I'm like, so I want to sort of change things around, bring the agile manifesto to folks like Jira. Be empathetic to your users, please. <laughs> it's, it's, now, at the same time, you can't let folks run amok because then they might crush the system. Yeah, if too many there's things you know. Yeah, if you know there, there are things you shouldn't do in Jira from a you know performance point of view, that's okay. But explain it. Don't just say no. And use human words, right? You don't yeah. don't talk about don't talk about conditions and validators. Just say, you know, human words. Yeah, right. If we add ten thousand custom fields, it might the performance will suck, and no one will know what to do. Okay, and so so if you go through the you know, one of the things I'm, I was going to do in the talk <clears throat> and something I, I did with the Federal Reserve is if you put a different year lens on and look at the bullets of the, of, of the Agile Manifesto, you know, like there's a lot of things around collaborate. Right, how about we negotiate? How about we, how about we, we work in small cycles, get some feedback? How about we, dare I say, have empathy for the user? And think of what you're doing as a Jira admin. Not as a you know the Department of Prevention, but but rather as a Department of Enablement, right? Try to understand, and this is this is how I tell software developers what that I work with. You, know, you want to know the level above the feature request. Don't be an order taker, but rather understand. Wait, okay, well, what are you trying to do? Because a lot of times when they express things technically, that's just their best way of trying to tell you their. They think they a lot of times users think they need to express requirements in your language. Yeah, tell me what you want business-wise. Don't don't try to put it in. Don't tell me I need X Y Z fields with these dropdowns. Tell me what you're trying to accomplish, because maybe I've seen other folks asking in the organization for something similar, and I can go, huh? Here's an interesting way to solve all of these problems. So I really want to appeal in that talk to Jira admins to think more like you're building because you are building a piece of software. But there's, there's, yeah. you know, it's yeah. got a, you know, it's got a, a, a framework, you know, so, some, some areas that, that, you know, it's kind of got a domain that you're working in, but you're building something on top of that. Treat it as such and use agile principles. Absolutely. I agree completely. One of the things that Atlassian has kind of shifted their marketing towards in recent, in recent days is the fact that Jira really can work for any team. There's this, this dogmatic assumption that, Jira soft, it's software. That's it. And some of the names don't help things. Jira software per se, <laughs> but um, you, it is so easy to meet any business's needs within the framework or 
most businesses' needs within the framework that the system provides. Between Jira and Confluence, you could run a marketing team, no problem. But there's, there's this barrier because it's so long been associated with just one thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, e- even a fairly complicated value stream that you might have. You know, our, our son works in, ma- in manufacturing, and I was uh, I'm friends with, his, with the owner and the boss. And, uh, and years back, he since sold the company, so it, this, this pro- project stopped. But I kind of did a walkabout of the shop, and he showed me all the basically the value stream. And things done manually and you know places where he would jokingly say stuff goes to die but you can you you know i was going to prototype and use jira even though there are manufacturing specific tools that are bigger and bolder but i thought a real simple way to break the barrier of you know kind of easing them into a more digital uh, approach was going to be jira and I'm convinced it would have helped them and would have worked. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's stuff where you got a, a, a to-do list and you might have some processes and, and statuses that, that you want to track. Knock yourself out. Knock yourself right? out. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's perfect for that. And, oh, by the way, you can you know, link artifacts to it like the travelers to have to go for the, the tooling and you know all kinds of things it would have been would have worked out really well so yeah you're right well john it's been a real pleasure hearing what you have to say today about the agile manifesto and processes in general and how to unfuck jira i think we'll be announcing your talk as a webinar from adaptivist sometime soon and uh we will make sure to link to information about that here in soundcloud john thank you so much for your time great to see you you're welcome Pleasure walking with you. Yeah, cheers, sir. And that's it for the inaugural episode of Team Titans. Tune in next week for the Atlassian Ecosystem Podcast, and we'll be back with another in-depth interview in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Be sure to connect with us on social at Adaptivist and subscribe to this podcast for more content and special surprises. See you next time on Adaptivist Live. Adaptivist Live.